The two of them, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John was with them as their helper. They traveled through the whole island until they came to Paphos. There they met a Jewish sorcerer and false prophet named Bar-Jesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul Sergius Paulus. The proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the sorcerer, for that is what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elymas and said, You are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You are going to be blind for a time, not even able to see the light of the sun. Immediately, mist and darkness came over him, and he groped about, seeking someone to lead him by the hand. When the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed, for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. John, good morning. Um, if you're fusion age, there should be a sheet for you to follow along. If you've not got one, pop up your hand and someone can bring you one. Uh, let me pray again before we uh, look at that passage in more detail. Let's pray. Lord God, may uh, the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. We pray this in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. <clears throat> well, there are moments in history where people start something, and then it reaches a tipping point, And they realize, this is going to be far bigger than I ever imagined when it started. So on the 4th of February, 2004, a young Harvard student named Mark Zuckerberg launched the Facebook.com just for students at Harvard. Within 24 hours, he had 1,500 registrations. Within a few months, it expanded to every university in the USA and Canada. That summer, it became an incorporated company. By December 2005, nearly two years later, it had six million users. When this origin story got made into a film called The Social Network in 2010, it had 500 million users. And when I last checked this week, in 2021, it has 2.89 billion users. So at some point in there, the spotty teenager who started it probably thought to himself, this is going to be a lot bigger than I thought it would be. And we reach something like that in this passage of the book of Acts. We reach a tipping point. When the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul, world history went through a tipping point. Things got bigger than anyone could have asked or imagined. So ages ago, when we, when we first did the first bit of Acts, in uh, chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus told his disciples, 
You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And in Acts so far, we've seen the first three of those come true. The gospel has gone through Jerusalem and then through Judea, the area around Jerusalem and Samaria. But in the last few chapters, things have been slowly turning to the ends of the earth. In the last couple of chapters, 10 and 11, Peter had a a vision and an encounter with Cornelius, this Roman centurion, and he's been teaching that salvation isn't just for the Jews, God's people of the Old Testament. It's for everybody, for the Gentiles, the non-Jews. At one level, last week would have kind of been a natural place to stop. We got to the end of uh, chapter, 24, uh, chapter 12, verse 24. The word of God was spreading and flourishing. We'd got through Judea, uh, Samaria, and Jerusalem. But it's important, just as we take a break from Acts, to step into this chapter. It kind of reminds us where things are going, to the ends of the earth. Like uh, Doc Brown turning up at the end of the first Back to the Future and saying, Roads, where we're going, we don't need roads. And then it cuts. You know, something bigger, something more exciting is coming next. Coincidentally, the Apostle Paul will need roads um, because we now shift from Peter reaching the Jews to Paul reaching the Gentiles. Now, a lot of us probably know about Paul's missionary journeys, but if you're anything like me, you can never remember where they start, where he goes, uh, despite probably being mapped out in the back of your Bible. Uh, But this is the first episode in Paul's first missionary journey. And we're going to think about this passage uh, under the heading of God's work and different ways that people respond to it. In verse 2, we read, uh, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. We're going to think about that work. We'll think about the church in this story. The church is ready to receive God's work when it comes. We'll think about this sorcerer, Bar-Jesus, and he gives us a warning against resisting that work when it comes. And we'll consider Sergius Paulus, this Roman ruler who offers a challenge to respond to God's work. And we'll see that each one of those characters, the church, bar Jesus, Sergius Paulus, has something to say to us because that work that began all the way in Acts 1 is still going on today. It's still going on this very morning. So first we see a call to receive the work. And we're going to look at the church. A call to receive the work. So chapter 12 ends... Barnabas and Saul go back to Antioch, which is in South Turkey uh, these days. They left for a bit to go to Jerusalem, but now they head back with their friend John Mark, who is most probably the Mark who wrote the Gospel of Mark. And Antioch is an amazing place. It's an incredibly diverse church. It was still mainly Jewish, Jewish people who'd become Christians, those who'd fled from Jerusalem because uh, Paul, in his previous life, was trying to kill them, and Jewish Christians already there who'd come to know Jesus. But they're very diverse. So look at verse 1. Barnabas we have. He was an ethnic Jew. He was a Levite, so from the priestly tribe, kind of top top tier. But he was born and raised in Cyprus. We have Simeon, which is a Jewish name. But he was called Niger, which is from the Latin for black. So he was almost certainly a black African Jewish Christian. We meet Lucius of Cyrene, a Gentile name. So maybe another uh, Greek-speaking Jew. Or he might be a Gentile who was a Jew and has now become a Christian. Uh, He's from Cyrene, which is roughly what we call Libya now. We get Menaean. Um, He was in some way close to Herod the Tetrarch, which is the Herod that killed John the Baptist. He's probably just a straightforward Jew who grew up in Israel. But he was close to Herod, who was cozy with the Romans. And Herod wasn't really a Jew. He was an Edomite. 
And then Saul, a bloodthirsty Pharisee who oversaw persecution that drove half of these Christians to Antioch in the first place. And these guys are the prophets and teachers. They're the elders, the leaders of the church. And imagine them at the church lunch together or sat in an elders meeting. You could hardly find a more diverse bunch at this point. These Jews from inside Israel and outside Israel, they didn't always get along, but here they are worshipping, praying, fasting together. And then the Holy Spirit speaks. God's voice comes. The Holy Spirit said, Luke says that very matter-of-factly, as he writes. We're not really told what that means. Was it a special revelation to one of these prophets? Or was it an inner sense of call that Saul and Barnabas had? Was it just a good application of a sermon? We don't know. Uh, So there's not much point in speculating. But what the Spirit said is far more important than how he said it. Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. We don't get told even exactly what that work is. They kind of send them off into the unknown. But at the end of chapter 14, we get told they sailed back to Antioch, Saul and Barnabas, where they'd been committed to the grace of God for the work they'd now completed. So given a task here that is finished in one sense by the end of chapter 14, what do they do in that time? They take the gospel to the Gentiles. They take the gospel to people who have never even heard of the promised Messiah. People who have no link to the God of Israel whatsoever. And so we've progressed through Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria so far. Um, But on this first missionary journey, Saul and Barnabas, they kind of go through the looking glass. This is the tipping point into uncharted territory. Even Cornelius, of the last couple of chapters, he was a Roman, but he was already worshipping the God of Israel when he heard about Jesus. Saul and Barnabas are going to make people who aren't even that far along. And the call comes at this tipping point over into the Gentile world, and Antioch are ready to receive the work. The Spirit speaks, and they send. The Spirit speaks, and Saul and Barnabas go. Now imagine the impact of losing these two. If the Apostle Paul was one of the elders in your church, you would not want to send him away. These guys nursed the church from its infancy. They would have been loved. They would have been great pastors, fantastic preachers. They could have enjoyed a long and fruitful ministry in Antioch. But the call comes, and the church is ready to receive it, is ready to send them off. What makes a church ready to do that? Ready to give its very best off to mission work somewhere else? Well, think about Antioch. It's basically a church plant. Jerusalem is the mother church where it all started. Antioch's made up of refugee Christians who fled and local converts because people came over to Antioch to, to talk about Jesus. So they knew they had benefited from others sending, others coming, other missionary activity. And they also knew that They were enjoying diversity in their church. So why would they not want to send the gospel out to even more people? Antioch was ready to receive. Saul and Barnabas were ready to go because they knew they benefited from the missionary activity of other people. And that is true of us here in King's Church Chesington this morning. Unless you're from a Jewish background, which I imagine almost none of us here this morning are, it's remarkable that you are here hearing about and worshipping Jesus this morning. Not just because you're a sinner, but because you're a Gentile sinner. Your ancestors were the kind of full-blown pagans that Saul and Barnabas were going out to reach. Come find, if you're descended from people who were in Britain 2,000 years ago, they were running around worshipping trees and covered in blue paint. It's crazy that now we are all here worshipping Jesus. 
A British Christian, I've said this before, is an exotic addition to the kingdom of God, as is a Nigerian Christian or a Korean Christian or a German Christian. Our ancestors benefited from the missionary activity of others. The Roman Christians brought the gospel here. Then Rome fell and the gospel trickled away and paganism took over. So in 595 AD, Pope Gregory the Great, who John Calvin called the last good pope, so I can mention him, sent another mission here to re-evangelize Britain. Augustine of Canterbury was the man who led it, which is why Canterbury is where the Archbishop of Canterbury's seat is. We're directly descended from that. That somehow led to Hook Evangelical Church being a thing and then planting here. We have two, three hundred years of great missionary legacy in Britain, but we were the beneficiaries of mission before that. That's what makes you ready to give and to send and receive the work when you know that you've benefited from it already. And be encouraged. We have sent many of our best off to other places to serve the Lord. We've sent Ben and Emily to Sweden. We planted Emmanuel Epson. We sent David and Heather off to Peak Trinity. We're sending Rob back to Haiti tomorrow, we've just been hearing about. We're part of this same work that Saul and Barnabas were sent off to do. Now that kind of exciting missionary sending, for a lot of us, it can seem a bit distant. It's something we send others off to do. What role do we have in it? But even if you're here in Chesington and you've never left, which is the case for a lot of people in Chesington, you're part of the same work. Let's look at what Saul, who's also called Paul, does. Now we're told once he gets there into Cyprus that he's also called Paul. We often say Saul the Pharisee became Saul the Apostle, but that's not the case. He had two names. He was also called Paul. Saul was the name he'd used with his Jewish friends, and Paul is the name he'd used when he went hung out with people from a Greek or a Roman background, much like people who move to the UK from another culture, they will often take on a British name. And so from this point, Saul just starts going by his Greek name all the time. And God uses that. He, he does it to make himself more comfortable around Gentiles, to make them, them more comfortable around him. And who's the first person he meets and the first person who's converted? It's another bloke called Paul. Sergius Paulus. If anything else, it's a conversation starter. Ha, oh, we've got the same name. Let me tell you about Jesus. That's not a good evangelistic strategy generally. But the point is, he makes himself comfortable, makes others comfortable around him in order to reach them with the gospel. And that's something that all of us can do. Make ourselves all things to all men that we might reach some people. Whether you're going off to the other side of the world as a missionary, or whether you're in Chesington trying to get people who you've known your whole life to finally listen to you about Jesus. We're part of that same work. And this story should remind us of other times in the Old Testament when God was reaching the nations. The gospel's tipping out here to the nations, but it was always God's plan. So think of Joseph, or Daniel, or Esther, or Nehemiah. They were all Jews who entered the courts of Gentile rulers and rose up to great positions of influence, didn't they? And at the first big tipping point out to the nations, what does the Apostle Paul do? Enters the court of a Gentile ruler and rises up to a position of influence. Luke's reminding us of those stories as he tells this one. Show that God's always been doing this. He's always been out to reach the nations. And he still is now. So we should be ready to receive the work that the Holy Spirit is doing. Whether we're off on the other side of the world or here for the rest of our lives in Chesington. So there's a call to receive the work. But then there's a warning against resisting the work as we encounter Bar-Jesus. 
Paul and Barnabas get to Cyprus. They visit the synagogues to tell the Jews first about their Messiah, Jesus. And then in Paphos, they meet Bar-Jesus, which means son of Jesus. He's a Jewish sorcerer and a false prophet, and he resists God's work. As a Jew, he should welcome this message. The Messiah is here. Praise the Lord, he should say. But he doesn't. He's become like the Gentiles. He's a sorcerer. We're not told exactly what that means, but whatever it was, it was forbidden by the Old Testament law. His other name, Elimas, is probably Arabic, so maybe he's mixed in bits of superstition and religion from other cultures to kind of create a weird Jewish-pagan hybrid. And he's very cozy with the Romans. He's in a Roman court, very odd. He's compromised himself. We've already seen how in Luke's replaying those Joseph and Daniel stories from the Old Testament. What else do those stories usually have? A court magician, a sorcerer. So the pharaohs roll them out to uh, interpret the dreams or to face off against Moses. And Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar roll them out to try and interpret things. And every time, God's man turns up and humiliates them. Now, it's a Jew, one of God's holy people, who's become like the pagan sorcerer. How far he is from where he should be. And he's whispering in the ear of his boss not to listen to Jesus. He's like worm tongue in the Lord of the Rings, whispering in Theoden's ear, corrupting him. The Jews should have been a light to the nations to draw people to the Messiah, but Bar-Jesus is doing the opposite of that here. He's carved out a nice comfy spot for himself in the court, I think. He's got just enough uh, paganism to fit in with the Romans, but he's just Jewish enough that he probably still looks down on the Romans and thinks, I'm better than them, though. Everything about his religion has become self-serving. It's about his comfort and about his status. And so Paul calls him out. His name means son of Jesus, but Paul says, you are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that's right. You're full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Elimas is a picture of what much of Israel becomes, sadly, in the book of Acts, resistant to their own Messiah. But he's likewise a warning to professing Christians now who resists the Holy Spirit's work. You see it very clearly in those like Bar-Jesus who are false teachers. People who pose as preachers but are really in it for themselves, who just want to protect their comfy position. You see it clearly in um, what we would call prosperity gospel preachers who fleece their flocks of, uh, of their money. People like Joel Osteen or Joyce Mayer, two of the biggest prosperity preachers around now, We should steer clear of them. They're in it for themselves. But our evangelical world has seen it much closer to home with scandal after scandal after scandal over the last few years of leaders who were revealed to just be in it for themselves. People like Ravi Zacharias, the famous evangelist, or Mark Driscoll, megachurch pastor, both revealed to be in it for themselves. We've had examples much closer to home in the UK as well. You can tell it's about themselves, because when the real gospel comes along, like it does here, it points to Jesus, not to them. And they don't like it. They're resisting the Spirit's work. And the hand of the Lord is very severely against any preacher who does that. If they make it about themselves, be very, very wary. Now, though false teachers are going to be judged more harshly than any of us, they cause more damage than probably any of us are ever going to cause, because of the responsibility they have, There are ways that any of us can end up being like Bar-Jesus. Ways that we can resist the Spirit's work. 
And Bar Jesus, he wanted his comfort, didn't he? His cushy place in the Roman court. But does our desire for comfort stop us from supporting the Spirit's work to reach the ends of the earth? Whether it's a failure to pray as we should for mission, whether it's a failure to to give as we could to help others tell people about Jesus, does our comfort stop us? Do we resist the Spirit's work by looking down on people who Jesus wants to reach? Sergius Paulus, he almost certainly looked down on his Roman boss and his Roman colleagues. If they had both started worshipping Jesus, Sergius Paulus and Bar-Jesus, that would have leveled the playing field. Bar-Jesus would have had to say, yeah, I'm not better than him because we're both just worshipping the same Messiah. He didn't want to swallow that. Is there anyone close to home, whether it's an individual or a type of person, who would trouble you if they became a Christian? Someone who, honestly, you don't really want to tell about Jesus because, honestly, you don't really want to see them in church. Or does it trouble you if you think about the fact that in 50 years, the biggest influences for Christianity in the world might not come from the UK or the USA. It might come from Africa or from China. We've had a good few hundred years of missionary activity. But now, uh, South Korea sent missionaries to Wales because the Welsh once sent missionaries to South Korea. Does that bother you? That the light may pass from people like you over to a different kind of people in 50 years' time? When you think about Afghan refugees being brought here, allegedly 20,000 over the next five years, do you first worry about the impact of immigration, or do you think to yourself, how are Christians going to reach those people when they move here? God takes that kind of resistance seriously. Elimas is called a child of the devil who perverts, literally makes crooked the straight ways of the Lord. At the start of Luke's gospel, Luke wrote Acts, He told people to make straight the crooked paths so that the Lord can come. Here, Bar-Jesus is making crooked the straight paths as if to stop the Lord coming. When we're resistant to the Spirit's work, that's what we do. We make the straight crooked. But there's hope, even for the Bar-Jesuses. Hope for us with our crooked, resistant hearts. Bar-Jesus is told that he'll be blind for a time, just like Saul was. This very much echoes Saul's conversion, doesn't it? Back in chapter 9. He was blinded, but the scales fell and he could see. Saul was making crooked the straight paths, but where did Jesus send Saul in chapter 9? To straight street. Maybe Elimas might end up on straight street. We don't know. He's left hanging, looking for someone to lead him, even though the Apostle Paul is right in front of him. Thinking again of false teachers... This, this hope, this hint that there could be redemption doesn't mean that repentance is easy for false teachers, that they can be quickly restored to ministry if they say they're sorry. It doesn't mean our first thought for false teachers is, is their repentance. Our first thought when we encounter false teachers should be for those that they have wronged, those that they've hurt, those that they've damaged. And if Elimas had repented, which he doesn't in this story, there would have been a lot of work to do to right the wrongs that he'd done. But for us generally, if we know there's resistance in our hearts to the Spirit's work of reaching the nations, because we value our comfort or because we look down on others, then we can cast ourselves on God's mercy and ask him to root it out, to open our eyes to the ways that we are proud, to make straight what is crooked in us so that we are 
receiving, like the rest of the church were, that work to reach uh, the nations. He can open our eyes, he can make straight what's crooked, so that we're in step with him. We've had a call to receive the work in the church. We've had a warning against resisting the work when we look at Bar-Jesus. And lastly, and more briefly, we look at Sergius Paulus and we have a challenge to respond to the work. So Sergius Paulus, he's the proconsul. He's probably the most senior Roman leader in the whole of Cyprus. There's abundant historical evidence that he existed. It's very unlikely that somebody would make up this story about his conversion, just as an aside. Um, After witnessing... Paul rebuke by Jesus, we're told, verse 12. So just Paulus believed, for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. Now this is a truly incredible conversion, okay? This man worships the Roman gods. He directly serves the Roman emperor, Claudius, who actively suppressed evangelism of other religions. So you can believe what you want, that's fine. We'll tolerate that in the Roman Empire, but don't evangelize other people. That's what the emperor said. His senior leader in Cyprus has just been evangelized. His entire life would have been tied up in the Roman gods and the Roman world in such a way that deciding to worship Jesus Christ, the Jewish Messiah, who supposedly returned from the dead, was crazy. He's not like Cornelius, like I said, who we've met. He lived in Israel. He already worshipped the Jewish God. You could tolerate that, him out there in the sticks in Palestine. But this is Cyprus. This is a, this is a, a well-to-do um, well-educated, he's uh, um, kind of place. He's in Paphos, the city. You know, the Jews are a bit extreme with their one God. Uh, it's much better for us Romans to be more tolerant, to you know, have our, our pantheon of lots of different gods. Don't shout about your own God too much. That's a bit too keen. He's one of the most unlikely converts you could think of. And yet he is the first we hear about at this tipping point as Paul goes out to the Gentiles. And notice, it's not because he's overawed or impressed by the miraculous blinding of Bar-Jesus. Verse 7, he's an intelligent man. He wanted to hear the word of God. And then he believed, but he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. It's not the bells and whistles of miracles, but it's what he's heard about Jesus that he responds to. And as some of you here this morning will likewise be intelligent people who are not yet Christians. You're here because you want to hear the word of God. You want to hear the teaching about Jesus. Well, why not believe? If you have any excuses for not believing and not following Jesus, for not becoming a Christian, let me tell you, Sergius Paulus had more excuses than you have. This would have made his life very complicated. He was a politician, a ruler, a Roman. Maybe he could just put following Jesus off until retirement when it would make life a bit less complicated. But he heard the teaching and he had to believe as complicated as it would make things. I made a lot of excuses about not following Jesus just before I became a Christian, how awkward it would make my relationships with my family, how I would tell people about it, how I would have to change. I was only 12. Life was not that complicated. Yet I found a lot of ways to make mistakes before finally admitting that I did believe. You can make excuse after excuse for why you're choosing not to follow, why you're choosing not to believe, even though you do believe on one level. Sergius Paulus had all those excuses, and yet he believed. The Holy Spirit was there at work, bringing the good news about Jesus to him. And he's doing the same thing this morning. As far as Paul would have thought, this is the ends of the earth. The furthest flung corner of the Roman Empire. Maybe Ireland. They didn't know that the Americas were there. 
But the same gospel that was working its way across Cyprus got here, and you're hearing it this morning. If you're here, and you're not yet a Christian, but you've been hearing about Jesus, why not follow him today? Whoever you are, wherever you're from, if Sergius Paulus could respond to the work of the Holy Spirit, then so can you. You can simply pray and tell Jesus you believe he is who he says he is. Or you can talk with a Christian friend who invited you about that. And for those of us who are Christians, we should take heart from reading about this. We all have people in our lives who we think are the most unlikely to ever become Christians. For whatever reason. And yet, who is the first convert when Paul goes out to start really reaching the Gentiles? A Roman proconsul. No one less likely. So pray earnestly for those people. Receive the Spirit's work. Go to them. Love them. Stick with them. Pray for them. Teach them whenever you can. And you're part of that same work that the Spirit was doing then. So, We've seen this morning a call to receive the work as we've looked at the church, a warning against resisting the work as we've looked at Bar Jesus, and a challenge to respond to that work as we've looked at Sergius Paulus. May we each have the ears to hear whichever one of those God is saying to us this morning. I'm going to pray briefly, and then uh, Rob Dalton is going to come back up and lead us in prayers for the congregation, and picking up on some of the things I've been uh, speaking about And then we're going to sing, uh, Facing a Task Unfinished. Great missionary hymn. It reminds us we're part of the same work that began in Acts, that carried through the great missionary age that went out from the UK, and is continuing now and into the next hundred years when who knows what the face of the church will look like around the world. Let me pray briefly, and then Rob's going to come up and uh, pray for the needs of the church. Father, we thank you that your son, the Lord Jesus, is seated on his throne and that he is being witnessed to uh, in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. We pray that you give us ears to hear this morning, um, whether we're being called to uh, receive your work and to be engaged in it, whether you're warning us against resisting uh, your work, or whether you're even challenging us for the first time to respond to that work and say that we believe in Jesus. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear as we go away this morning. Amen.